being a God who saves, who turns graves into gardens, who takes bad things and turns them into good things. You are so good, Father. We worship you today. Thank you for turning our pain into joy. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name. Come on up here, Latina. We have a special word for you this morning from Latina. Can we give it up for Latina? All right. Good morning. Good morning, Freedom Valley. It's amazing. Every time I come up here, I have to raise myself on the wall. Uh, but nonetheless, I come forth in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and I come forth not just as Latina, but officially as Latina Celeste Ministries. And I have a word for you in terms of what you need to take for yourself every day, for your family, for your community. <clears throat> we are the church. We are the church of God, the church of Christ. And what I found is that we have not been operating as the church of God and Christ. He told Peter, Upon this rock, I will build my church, right? Well, if we are the church, and I'm getting a little nervous. Let me hold on. Get a little excited. We need to move. The power of Christ is the power to conquer. And there is no reason why we should be broke down, busted, and disgusted. There is no reason why we should be the bottom of the barrel. If we have Christ, who is the hope of glory, then we have what the world needs, but it has to start with us. It has to start with us. And I understand that not everybody is physically able. And excuse me for rocking back and forth, but again, I'm a little nervous, but nonetheless, this word is going to come forth. Don't miss the message looking at the messenger. And the word of God is this. If we have the power of Christ, we have the power to conquer. Why are we fascinated with superheroes? because they come with something to offset the injustices and the things of this world. Is that not right? Okay, so check this out. We have Christ, all power and authority. He has given us. It starts with you knowing that, it starts with you receiving that, and it starts with you walking in that. Do not, for any reason, back down. And my word to you today is push back. Push back. You don't have to push back physically. You can push back with your mouth, your prayers, your time, your attention, whatever you need. And I'm going to get past this nervousness. Let me walk around a little bit. Again, this is not my natural habitat, but I do get up and I put the word forth and I say, rise. I say, roar. We need to roar. The righteous are as bold as a lion. The enemy comes with fear. He comes with fear when he roars and he has no teeth. You have all power, all weapon, all authority, you and I. And I'm telling you something that I know for myself. I am not going to take it lying down. If I got to drag my leg, if I got to cry all night, Latina coming roaring. And so what I'm saying to you is whatever you got to do, open up your mouth, praise him, pray to him. You are the body of Christ. We are warriors. What did Aaron sing? Let me get some of that anointing. He said, we are, he is our champion. 
Miracles break out when I open my mouth. I expect miracles, walls to come down, giants. So we're moving into the season. This week is coming up. Pastor Candace has a, uh, a guess about grief. Grief, financial burdens, whatever you got going on, the same answer is the same answer. The power to conquer is the power of Christ. The power of Christ is the power to conquer. And I'm saying to you, if we want the world, what is this, a social gathering? Latina got better things to do with her time than to be coming and looking at you all just because. I'm going to let you know. That's why some people wash their car. They choose to do overtime because we have not exhibited what the power of Christ is. And so I charge you. I say to you. I implore you. I beg of you. We are the body of Christ. And upon this rock, this church shall be built. Whatever you need, start with the fear of God. That is the first part of wisdom. Is that not true? In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I feel my help because I ain't nervous no more. But nonetheless, we're going to pray. We got some undertakings in the name of Jesus Christ. Aaron and Candace took on something powerful. They are bringing in children broken to their homes. Foster. You might not can do that, but you can support. I remember when I had that dream about the blanket. I didn't give you all the full understanding. The blanket I had in the dream covering Candace. She was in the classroom where I teach. She was getting ready to go forth and deal with children. That was before this whole thing kicked off. Like I said, I know when he speaks to me in dreams, it may not be everything I understand right then and there, but it is the word that's coming. Last night, overnight, I kept dreaming about children going in rooms. They disheveled. They don't know which way to go. We must. We are teachers. You, me, teachers, parents. We are teachers. The greatest influence. Again, but how are our children going to know if we walking around weak? And again, it has nothing to do with your physical stature. What I'm here to do is to motivate you from Latina Celeste Ministries and understand this. I don't care what is going on. We serve the great I am, Yahweh. Jehovah pushback. COVID, all this other stuff. We got everything out in this world. And get this, if you don't learn to push back, you're going to be walking around scared. Because as I said before, if it ain't this, it's going to be that. If it ain't COVID, it's going to be a recession. If it ain't this, it's going to be that from the government. Walking around like nervous Nelly, anxious, anxious all the time. Again, that is not my portion. That is not my bread. If we need to take this, that, and the other, live a holistically life, I get it. But your first portion needs to be Christ. Your first portion needs to be prayer. And then if you need to do whatever else for a holistic approach to your problem, you best do it. In Christ Jesus' name, and I know best may not be a word, but you're getting it just like that. Pray fast. Seek the Father. This is not a game for me. My life was on the line. I almost died a couple of times. Lost it all. But you know what? I pushed back. And if I got to go down, I'm going down swinging. Now let me check this out. We can pray for these fine, upstanding citizens. Pastor, Candace, and Aaron. And then I'm going to get out your way. But I pray you understand and feel this energy. It's called the Spirit of Christ. So let's all pray, you understand? Father God, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you that your word stands above your name. You exalt your word. Your word is Christ Jesus. I ask, Father God, as the word goes forth through Candace, that you bless her in a special way. 
Bless Pastor Aaron, who brings forth that worship and his team every week. Bless all of the members here at the sound of my voice, that you ignite something in them, that you motivate something in them. And anybody watching out in Facebook land, stand up, rise up, roar in the name of Jesus Christ. Again, bless them in a special way. We love you. We absolutely know that we can do nothing without you. But we can do all things through Christ Jesus, who strengthens us. We're coming up and coming through. And as the body of Christ is built up brick by brick, and we become whole, we can go out with that true power. We don't need to be playing church and coming around. We have the hope that the world needs, and we have all power. I say I love you. I need you. Continue to show your glory through your people and your church. In Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Does that motivate anybody today? Are you ready for the week now? <laughs> I am. All right. Thank you so much, Latina, for speaking into us. Hey, this is Candace Pringle, lead pastor of Effie Church, and this is our podcast. All right. It's unqualified number three. I have been enjoying this sermon series so much. I hope that you've gotten as much out of it as I have. Look, something I pretty commonly hear from new people coming into the church is that they often feel like they're going to burst in flames coming through the doors, right? That um, lightning's going to rain down, the walls are going to cave in, something bad is going to happen if they darken the doors of a church. And we give off this idea, I think, incorrectly, that Christians must be perfect, right? We must follow this strict guideline. We, we must talk the same, walk the same, dress the same. When we all come together, we must act like we all read our Bibles every day and pray nonstop and have worship music always playing in our kitchens, right? But that is, we all have to be the same. And I, I think it's true that most Christians are trying to do better, be better, you know, truly walk the walk, right? Walk the chalk. And it's not a bad thing unless it's not real. At Freedom Alley, we've always been a real church, down-to-earth church. There's no pretending or acting or judging. At least I hope there's not. We, we strive to be real. That's not to say that we won't push you, right? That, that we won't grow you, stretch you. We should always be allowing the Holy Spirit to grow us, stretch us, and change us, right? God loves us right where he, we are, but he doesn't leave us there. He pushes us. And over the past two weeks, you know, we've talked about how God can use our anger. We've talked about how God can use even our fear. What if I'm not dealing with huge amounts of anger or fear, though, but I have made a lot of mistakes, right? Like, like sins. Like, I've, I've done a lot of things that should unqualify me for anything useful in God's kingdom. What if I, I have a past that would make a sailor blush, <laughs> What if, what if I'm still doing some of those things? Well, what if I'm a complete mess and I've made a mess of my life and I have no idea how to clean it up? How could God possibly use that? And so we walk around sometimes, like Latina mentioned, like downtrodden, beat up, how did you say it? Broke down, busted, and disgusted. I need to remember that one. 
Right? We walk around like that. Like there's a weight on our shoulders. Like even coming into church, we're ashamed. Our heads are down. We, we can't face God. And our humanness and, and pride, ours, the churches, uh, those of us that are in the church, in our humanness and pride, we want to say that you have to clean up your act before you come to God, before he can do anything through you. And we honestly feel correct in that. Like it, it feels like it should be that simple. Like it's all behavior based. If we're good little boys and girls, we will get rewarded. Isn't that what Sunday school taught us? Right? It was all about our behavior, not what was going on in here. If we are good little boys and girls, follow all the rules, then we get more responsibility. But then there are passages like John 4. I want to read this to you today. And I want you to to hear it in that frame of mind, from that frame of mind. Because I, I, I don't know about you, but it sort of obliterates all preconceived notions I have about this. Okay? Let's just start reading. I think you'll see what I mean. John 4, verse 1. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. This is John the Baptist. We're right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry here in John 4. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. I just want to stop here to give you a little bit of context, okay? Most Jews avoided Samaria, like at all costs. Samaritans were considered to be the lowest of the low. They were like cousins. They they didn't even consider them to be Jewish, although they kind of were related Jews considered them to be unclean and that they refused to be clean, right? They fundamentally disagreed with Jerusalem Jews. And honestly, mostly it was really over where they chose to worship. Samaritans believed that Mount Gerizim was the most holy place, citing 13 references to Mount Gerizim throughout the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, They believed that was the place to worship. This was the main source of contention between these two groups of people. I should say that they do believe this. I actually looked it up this week, and there are still Samaritans today. I did not know this. Wikipedia claims there are less than 1,000 still in the world. Like, less than 1,000 people still consider themselves to be Samaritans. And they're very small sects, um, mostly still in Samaria, or today called the West Bank. I did not know this. But they believe that they have to worship at that exact location, that they have to follow all of the rules in the Torah. They do animal sacrifice. They have strict Sabbath obedience, and they follow all of the laws, all of them, with only a few minor tweaks to that of the Jerusalem Jews, okay? Which I say they are small tweaks. The Jews of Jerusalem did not and do not agree that they are small. They are very big deals to them, okay? They do not see them as small tweaks. They saw them as very, very large tweaks. Mount Gerizim isn't the most holy place. It's not even a place to worship at all. Jerusalem is the most holy place. There is no other place, actually. You either worship at Jerusalem or you aren't clean, period. Okay, this is the context for this, these couple of groups coming together in this story. Jews hated Samaritans, looked down upon them. They were generally even annoyed at their very existence, okay? Seems laughable today. Doesn't that, I mean, I'm making this huge deal out of it. It really was a huge deal. And it just seems so silly to me today, to a 21st century 
Christian, seems laughable that I should believe that there is only one place to worship God. We just came through a couple of years of a lot of us worshiping God at home in our own homes, right? Just seems laughable. And, and that that would be enough to hate another believer over. It actually made me really sad when I learned that there were Samaritans still in existence today, still 2,000 years later, fighting over the same thing, (laughs) where to worship God. It's sad that they're still in bondage to that. But when I really got to thinking about it, that's most people, isn't it? Still in bondage to wrong ways of thinking and slavery to a prideful, misguided theology about who God is and what God wants. Christians do it too. And we put God in our own little boxes. We constrain him. We make him smaller in our eyes than he actually is. We think he only wants things one way, this way, not that. But in reality, God's kingdom is usually this and that, not this or that. The reality here is Samaritans were wrong. Jesus makes that clear in this passage. The Samaritans were and are wrong. But that didn't stop Jesus from coming to them. Didn't stop Jesus from revealing himself to them first, actually. I spent some time this week questioning that, too. This was the first time, we're going to read, the first time Jesus really revealed who he was to the public at large. By this time, he had called disciples to him. He had been baptized, you know, the public baptism. He had done a couple other things. But this was his first real public act of ministry. And it wasn't to the Jews. It was to the Samaritans. I think he went to one of the most... One of the people groups that were the most in bondage, actually. I think he went to them first. And of those most in bondage, he went to a woman, which is significant in that time in history because she was even more in bondage than her male counterparts, and went to a woman who was also in slavery to sin on top of it. He didn't go to the most holy man of the town. He didn't go to the one who had their life all together, who was rich, had servants, never got his hands dirty, so to speak, and also in the religious sense of the word. He didn't go to them. Jesus went to her, this woman that we're going to read about today. And then he put her to work. It was a longer trip to go around Samaria, but that was the trip most Jews took. Most Jews would have walked way around gladly just to be able to say that they did not go through Samaria and therefore did not encounter any Samaritans that might have made them unclean. Jesus didn't do this. He didn't avoid people. In fact, he chose Samaria for something significant. Okay, now that we have the context, let's keep reading. Verse 5. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Joseph's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy more food. A couple more cultural pieces of context here that we have to understand. First of all, women usually went to the well at dawn. There was only one well. It was slightly outside of town. Okay, they lived in a hot environment, so dawn was the best time to go. You go 
get the water for, that your family needs that day. It was also like a social hour, right? They got to talk, share the news, get, you know, a little socializing in at the coolest time of day. The fact that this woman was here alone at noontime was significant. It suggests that she was avoiding the other women, okay? She was avoiding the rude stares, the snide remarks, the judgment. We know this from later. It gives us a little bit more context into who she is. She was avoiding the pain of encountering other Samaritans. She knows she hasn't done things according to society's standards, according to her religion's standards, according to God's standards. She knows that. She's well aware, okay? There is no need for everyone around her to make that clear all the time. But I think if we're honest, we do make it clear all the time. If we're honest, we know when we're living not right, right? Sin comes with an inherent shame, doesn't it? You actually don't need anyone to tell you what you're doing is shameful. You just know. Now you can turn that sensor off. You ignore it for a while, or maybe you grow up in an environment that taught ignoring it for a while. But most of us, we know. It's why we say things like, fire's going to rain down from heaven if I darken the doors of a church, or, you know... The, the walls are going to cave in. <laughs> so we already know we carry that shame around with us. So, although you have no intention of changing your lifestyle, you somehow usually know that God wouldn't approve. Christians, I'm talking to believers here, no one needs your judgment. No one needs your side remarks, your prideful stare. Right? No one needs it. What people do need, all people, is Grace. Love, right? Jesus gave grace here in abundance. In fact, he gave grace to everyone except the religious elites that were religiously abusing everyone else. He gave grace. Nothing is worse than a church who judges newbies. Nothing. I'm convinced there's this sickness that comes over me when I hear of like religious abuse. It, because it affects people forever, like forever, not just here on this planet Earth like some of the other abuse, but forever. It's disgusting. We will never be that church, not if I have anything to do with it. A church that judges newbies is, is a dull, passionless, selfish church who has no interest in changing the world with the message of the gospel anymore. That's not who we are. We are vibrant, passionate, and selfish, self, selfish, selfless, mixing the two words. We patiently teach, we patiently correct, and we guide. We throw our arms open to those who desperately need love. We love them wholeheartedly, even when they make mistakes and failures, because you know what? We all do. And you start pretending you don't anymore. It's when things get dangerous. We were all once new. And even when we're not new, we still make mistakes. The world doesn't need one more judgmental Christian. Jesus didn't come for that. He came to change that. She didn't need it. Verse 9, the woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? She's a little skeptical at this point, right? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gifts God has for you and who you are speaking to. 
you would ask me, and I would give you living water. But, sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said. Where she's still thinking in these physical terms. We do this all the time, too, just as a side note. God speaks in spiritual terms, and we're like, it does not compute. Like, it, we're, we're physical. We, we only see the physical, right? He's trying to elevate our thinking to get us to see something so much bigger. If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. This is, by the way, my favorite approach to evangelism. If you only knew. There is so much hope for you. If you could only reach out and take it, there is so much hope. If you only knew how good God is. Right, coming from that place of joy, of abundance, of victory, like Latina was mentioning. Like, we have so much to offer, and we hide it all the time. Just, it doesn't make sense. But, sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How could you offer better water than he and his sons and and, and and his animals enjoyed. Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said. Now she's interested. Give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Still thinking physically. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. Full stop there, because I spent most of my time studying this sentence this week. This one single sentence. Go and get your husband. John 4, 16. Go and get your husband. Not really one of those verses you find on a sign at Hobby Lobby, right? It's not one you're going to hang on your wall. It's not one I've ever heard anyone memorize before, ever. But this is a significant sentence, Go and get your husband. Significant enough that Jesus said it, okay? First of all, when Jesus says something, he's saying something, okay? He is God. He is perfect. When he says something, it's more than just surface level. When he does something, it's more than just surface level. When he does something, he's doing something. So I say all these things just to help you understand the process, okay? Anyone, anyone can do this. Anyone can look at a sentence in the Bible and say, why? God, why? Reveal your truth to me, right? You just have to have a couple of baseline beliefs that you don't question or move. Then you fit the scripture into it. Okay, here, for example, it's easy to read this passage and just read it for face value. Go and get your husband and just keep reading, right? Or it's easy to read into something that, something that isn't there, okay? Like Jesus doesn't value women without their husbands, you look at the rest of Scripture, and you know that Jesus values women, okay? It has nothing to do with that. It's not even close to true. First of all, women funded Jesus' ministry. They made it possible. They were intricately used and believed in with Jesus. And after, even after that in the early church, and Jesus uses women to do some things first. For example, in this passage, the first evangelist ever on planet Earth was a woman. Women were the first to find the tomb empty, for example, right? They were the first. But it's easy to look at this verse and assume some things. That's why we have some not movable things when we study the Bible. It's also easy to look at this verse and just keep reading. Just something Jesus said. Go and get your husband. But Jesus is perfect, right? 
He is God. He is purposeful. Our God is purposeful. Again, do, when he does something, he's doing something. He does not make mistakes. He does not misspeak. So knowing that this woman does not have a husband, Jesus says, go and get your husband. See why I spent my time on this? Why? Why would you? Why, Jesus, why? Why would you say go and get your husband when you know she does, you, you can't explain this sentence away by saying Jesus didn't know. He knew. We know he knew because of what he says next. Verse 17 says, I don't have a husband, the woman replied. And Jesus says, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you've had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Jesus wasn't being judgmental here. Don't read that with a judgmental attitude. Just factual. He knew And he still said, go get your husband. Why? I think, if you're thinking about this a lot, there's a number of purposes Jesus had for this one simple sentence. I actually think he was accomplishing three things with this one simple sentence. By the way, this is what the Holy Spirit does. All the time he does this. He's done this for me so many times. There are layers to his words layers to them. Truth is, is deep. This is God's just a separate thing. Maybe God's been revealing to me lately, but it's truth is layered. It's deep. Lies are shallow. Lies are one-sided. They're easy to see that they're, if you dig a little bit, it's easy to, to expose them as lies, right? Truth is layered. It's deep. God's word always has layers of truth hidden within them. And when God says something, he's saying something. The Holy Spirit is so Completely, utterly genius with stuff like this. Okay, once you start digging, it's just amazing what he's actually saying with a simple sentence like, go and get your husband. With a simple sentence, he does three things in this woman's psyche. Number one, he showed her her own need. No, that's not a typo. Her, her. He showed her her own need. He held up a mirror a little bit. He held up a mirror. Look, we need this sometimes. Right? We, we can't see ourselves properly sometimes. This, this was the purpose of the law, right? All the law and the prophets, they're, they're to give some structure, some standards, some bar to hit to show us our need for God, knowing we won't ever hit that standard all of the time. We need God. We need that mirror held up. We have to know, by the way, that we need him in order to come to him with an open heart. A lot of times as Christians, we force our beliefs on other people that don't know they need it yet. It's more harmful than helpful. We have to come to a place of knowing that we need him in order to receive him. I've done this with random things in my life, too. I will stomp my feet and throw a royal fit to God sometimes. And I tell you all the time, God's not afraid of your anger, right? He wants you to have those conversations. And so, God, I'm so mad about this. They're like, you have to fix it. Particularly, you have to fix them, right? So I'm angry that somebody else is doing something I don't like or approve of. It's, it's causing me some negative reaction. I don't like it, God. I, I'm throwing a fit about it. I'm worked up. But I bring it to God, 
And in the course of that conversation, nine times out of ten, once I've calmed down a bit, I end up leaving that temper tantrum, understanding that it was actually my fault. <laughs> like, I need to change some things, too. I walk away from that so humbled, like, okay, God, I'm, yeah, I'm sorry. I, get, I see it now. Uh, that was, <laughs> I'm going to change. I'm going to do better. I was seeing it selfishly. I, I'm going to do better. This is what the Holy Spirit does. And he does it with like a sentence. Go and get your husband. He was helping her to see herself. Jesus came to seek and to save the who? The lost. Seek and save the lost. Right? Not the ones who think they are found. We did a whole series, I think it was 2020, maybe it was last year, called Lost and Found. There are those that think they are found, almost impossible to reach. It's the ones that know they are lost that can be found. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. I think a lot of times we waste our time trying to convince people who already think they are found that they need Jesus instead of going after the lost. People have come... (sighs) to a realization that they are indeed lost first. They have to come to it before they can be found. Jesus here was helping this woman to see that she was lost. He needed to expose the woman to her own sin in a non-judgmental way to make her aware of her need for him. Look, she wasn't far in the first place. She wasn't far. She, She probably beat herself up the whole way to that well and back every single day, avoiding her peers, of avoiding the other people in town, avoiding the looks. She, she probably couldn't go through town without people giving her dirty looks. And she wasn't far. But to this stranger at a well in the middle of nowhere, maybe she could pretend, right? Maybe she could put the pride walls up with a stranger. He showed her her own need for him. Number two, the second thing he did with this amazingly simple and yet profound sentence is he was teaching her how to wonder. He was causing her to wonder, to get her to ask questions. He he intrigued her a little bit, right? Christians today can be so afraid of questions. We're so afraid that someone will ask us a question that we don't know the answer to and that our faith will somehow appear under-researched or unintelligent. We want to have the answers so that we look good. And it's like the number, when, I, when we go around home group circles or, you know, Bible study circles and we say, who have you led to Jesus lately? Well, no one. I'm just so afraid that somebody's going to ask me a question I don't know the answer to, and so I just don't do it. I don't, I don't tell people about Jesus. It's like the number one reason. We don't want anyone thinking less of God because of us is what it boils down to. And while that sounds really noble, you don't have to have all the answers. God can handle the questions. Christianity holds up under scrutiny. There are countless stories out there that prove that. Did you know C.S. Lewis was actually an atheist throughout his early life and came to Christianity by asking questions later in life? The Case for Christ, you know the book? By Lee Strobel, the author, it's another example of that. He was an author. He set out to disprove Jesus, actually. Turned out he's real. (laughs) He was convinced of that by his research and wrote a book about it instead. 
There are countless stories like that. Not only that, but science backs up the Bible. You want to build your faith in that regard, go check out answersingenesis.org. Answersingenesis.org. It backs up. There are some crazy things in Genesis, (laughs) y'all. There are answers at answersingenesis.org, right? A lot of people will throw out, like, how could this be real? How could this be real? It's, It's on there. The truth is out there. Science backs up the Bible. Or go see the ark in Kentucky. Do you know the ark encounter? We were there last year with my family. Science backs up the Bible. Christianity holds up. It does. Sometimes you just have to know that you're lost before you can find that truth, though. You have to know it's out there. You have to start asking questions before you're ready to hear the answers. We, as Christians, sometimes want to just shove the answers at people. They have to come to a place where they're ready to ask questions before they can hear it. We hope to have, have all these answers wrapped up in a neat little bow for them. We hope to have this perfect life together, totally obedient ourselves, knowing all there is to know about the Bible, ready with an answer that someone may have any answer. (laughs) I get that sentiment, but it's not only not realistic, it's counterproductive. God can use your inadequacies. That's what the series is about. God can use the fact that you are not perfect. He already knows that about you, by the way. And he still calls you to serve him. And God can use the fact that you have also asked questions and that you sometimes still have doubts, that it's okay to have those and still be a follower of Jesus. The key is to ask the questions, express the doubts to God because he can handle them and he can answer them. We have to have a little bit of wonder. We need wonder to come to Jesus. We need it to see the mysteries of the universe, to see how amazing the world is and how wonderful. We need to ask those questions ourselves because truth that's just lying around on the surface for anyone to find isn't something we tend to typically believe. Think about it. Someone approaches you in the middle of the street with a conspiracy theory, just runs up to you and starts telling it to you. Do you believe it immediately? Just because somebody shoved it at you? Not likely, right? But say you're thrown into a situation where you're suddenly being conspired against. You may not have all the details. You may not even be able to prove it. But because you lived it, you are convinced. Right? You believe it wholeheartedly. It happened to you. Or take teenagers, for example. We can tell them till we're blue in the face that something is true. Right? That they're headed toward danger. But until they've experienced it. And we can't just be told. (laughs) That's not in our nature. We can't be told. We, we need to wonder. We need to ask questions. We need to find the truth for ourselves. We need a sign or two, like Gideon from last week sometimes. We need that. God knows that. He's not mad about it. It's how he created us. He gives us those signs, like we learned the past two weeks. We are creative beings made in the image of God. We're curious. We're intelligent. We're inquisitive. All good things. Don't insult people because they are those things. Use them. Jesus used her wonder. He caused her to wonder. He was teaching her how to wonder. I'm not saying you need to know everyone's life story because that may also be creepy in the wrong context. No stalkers, right? But I am saying stop hiding the miraculous. We hide it a lot. Stop hiding the testimonies. 
Right, stop hiding what God has done in your life just because you're with a non-believer. Don't give me that look. I know, because we've all done it. I know, you know, I have that feeling too. When, when you're with someone who doesn't believe, you downplay it, right? You talk about it differently. You allow for a measure of doubt. Don't. If God did something in your life, amazing and miraculous, tell people about it. Who cares if you look crazy? Somebody listening might not think you're crazy. They might need to hear that because they're wondering right now. Allow people to wonder and express their doubts without judgment. It's fine. It's perfectly okay. They may still go home wondering later. You may have planted a a seed. Maybe that's the wonder that they needed. Jesus talks about seeds falling on tough soil, right? Different kinds of soil. Some seeds fall on rocks. Some seeds fall on thorns. Some seeds fall on soft soil. What if you are the one tilling the ground for somebody else? You're causing wonder, stirs things up inside them a little bit, right? Causes them to maybe not be so tough about what they believe. Maybe question just a little bit. Maybe you're not the one called to plant the seeds. You're the one called to soften the soil, to get them ready to hear a seed that's coming later. I think that's what wonder does. Tills up our soil. It it causes us to ask questions, to be ready, to have an open heart. Jesus does it constantly. You see it throughout the word. Now that I've said it, you'll see it when you're reading the Gospels. Wonder and all spread throughout the area. He comes into a new town. He does some miracles. And then it says wonder and all spread throughout the entire area. Jesus uses wonder. And this is what he's doing in this woman's life. He's creating wonder. But that's not all he did. I have a number three. Let's keep reading. Verse 19. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. She's intrigued now, right? You can hear her stance start to change. She went from skeptical to, like, questioning. Now she's intrigued. You must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship? While we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshiped. Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman. The time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. She already has a measure of belief, right? He's stirring it up in her. Now she's wondering, could this be him? Like, I'm not, I don't want to say it. Commit to it yet. Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Just then his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. She didn't know all there was to know. The first evangelist Jesus ever used did not know everything there was to know. She ran back to the village and asked a question. Could he be the Messiah? Let's go and see for ourselves. Could he be the Messiah? The third thing Jesus did here is he showed her that God still seeks people like her. 
It's one sentence. Go and get your husband. He was showing her God still seeks people like her. It wouldn't come to later in the conversation, but acknowledging the sin in her life made her realize God still seeks people like her. Right? He showed her that he knew her past. She didn't have to hide anything with him because he already knew. She didn't have to hide herself from him because he approached her. A lying isn't necessary with Jesus. He already knows. Lying isn't necessary with Jesus, but neither is shame. We act like the walls are going to cave in, the building's going to light on fire, lightning's going to stream down from the sky, but the reality is none of those things are true with Jesus, and none of it's necessary. Those feelings aren't necessary. He already knows, and he loves you anyway. He already knows, and he still chose to die on that cross. But he already knows, and he still came to find you. He knows what you struggle with. He knows the fear. He knows what you're angry about. He knows what to do with it. He knows what you've done and what you're going to do. He knows. So why are we still trying to hide things? What is it you're trying to hide from him today? What do you think disqualifies you from being used by Jesus? That we count ourselves out far more often than God does. He didn't count her out. He chose her. He chose her of all the Jews, of all the religious people, of all the rich people, of all the uh, religious leaders and experts. He chose her. A sinful woman at a well in Samaria to reveal himself to first. And he spent days with the Samaritans after that, loving them, ministering to them, preaching to them. He chose them. And he not only chose her to reveal himself to, he chose her to use. Right? There are, those are the three things that I believe he did with that one statement, that genius, small statement from Jesus. But there's actually a fourth thing that I think Jesus wanted to accomplish through this woman, and that is that through her, he showed the entire town who he was. Think about it. If Jesus had picked somebody else, somebody more qualified, a priest, a rabbi, a teacher, an expert in religious law, if he had chosen someone else, the people probably still would have come, but out of obligation. They would have come out of a need to be religious, out of a need to impress their rabbi. The fact that they came because she invited them says something. I guarantee you there were no priests or religious leaders in that crowd, not a one. I guarantee you none of them came purely because she invited them. They thought the Messiah would be something else, someone else. They, they probably thought he would never use that type of person, a woman, that woman. He wouldn't. He would come to them first, surely. He would have announced himself, came into the, the temple. He would have seeked out the most clean, the most religious, the coolest guy in town. They probably would have dismissed her outright because of her past. It's not the Messiah, I guarantee it. Not if she's the one telling us. Jesus doesn't do that, though. 
In fact, the very thing you think disqualifies you from salvation or, or service, like your anger, your fear, your past mistakes, might actually be the very thing that qualifies you. Jesus chose her for these reasons. Because the crowd that she brought was a very different crowd from that which the leaders would have brought. The crowd she brought knew they were lost. The crowd she brought didn't have the pride walls up, the skepticism, the doubt. The crowd she brought genuinely wanted to know, is it the Messiah? They were curious. And because she was the one asking, there was even more wonder. Could it be the Christ? Could it be him? Could he possibly be here in Samaria of all places, out at the well at noon? Could that be the Christ? There's a whole different crowd. The thing you think disqualifies you, I guarantee you, is the thing that will qualify you for ministry to the right people. Some of us, we have trouble sharing Jesus because we're looking at the wrong people. We haven't placed enough people around us. We haven't gone to the lost. We want them to come to us. We got to go to them. We have to go and, and cause wonder, love them, not go with judgment and shame. Jesus didn't do that. He went with grace and love. And you don't have to know all the answers. Just say, come and see. Come and see. Come and see what I've experienced. Come and see. Not, not come and see my church and the lights and the music and the whatever. Not, not come and see the show. Come and see Jesus. Not come and see my perfect life and everything that he's done for me. And I'm rich and powerful and famous now. You can have that too. Come and see what Jesus has brought me out of. Come and see that he acknowledged my sin. He knows who I am and he still chose me. He still loves me. Come and see. You don't have to know it all. Just say come and see. Come and see what he's done for me. And what he's done for me personally he accepted me, and I did not deserve it. He loved me when I did nothing to earn it, and he used me even though I'm fully unqualified. And I know without a shadow of a doubt that he can do it for you too. I tell this story a lot, but the four words that Jesus changed my life with are, but I love you. When I was telling him all of the ways that I was unqualified. I shouldn't be here. I don't deserve to be here. I keep doing things I know I shouldn't do. I'm probably just going to do it again tomorrow. Like, I'm not, God, I'm not who you think I am. Which is laughable. God said, but I love you. But I love you. I know about the past, right? I get it. But I love you. Love covers it. Love covers it. Jesus came to cover it. He came to make you qualified. He knows you will never be qualified, by the way. 
We can never earn it. We can never be perfect like he is and was when he walked this earth. He came to qualify us. He gave us his qualifications. He puts that onto us when we accept him. And it's easy. He wants to do that for you. What those four words did for me over the next few years, by the way, is they not only caused me to accept love from God, but they made me want his love. The fact that he loved me when I didn't deserve it, when I felt like I didn't deserve it most, caused me to act different. Caused me to behave differently. It caused me to want to earn something that he had already given me. Sounds backwards and like it doesn't make any sense, but that's the way God works. He gives love first, though you did nothing to earn it. And then you want to earn it because he's already given it to you. That's the kind of God we serve. Jesus did it for the woman at the well. He qualified her. His presence brought the kingdom. We often think we have to bring people into church to get them to to know God, that it has to be Candace's words, it has to be Aaron's songs, like I can't do it by myself. But you bring the kingdom with you. You bring the victory with you. You bring the freedom, the joy, the hope, the peace with you. You are the church. It doesn't stop and end here. We come together, we gather together to serve each other and to inspire each other to go back out and take it with us. We take it with us. We say, come and see. Come and see what Jesus has done for me. Come and see that he loves me anyway, even though I'm a mess. It's amazing how he does that, isn't it? He can do it for you too. He came to seek and to save the lost And as a disciple of Jesus, I have to remember always that I'm still lost sometimes. And I have not arrived just because I've been a follower since I was three. (laughs) It's because I've always lived my life. I'm trying to serve him. That doesn't mean I'm perfect and it doesn't mean I deserve any of this. All of the good things about me are Jesus. All of the bad things about me are me. He qualifies me. He is good to me. So overwhelmingly good to me. I know he can be that for others too. That's the message that we carry. It's not you have to do this. You have to be this. We're not looking down our noses at people, shaking our fingers at them. But just to be real honest with you, that's 90% of the Facebook posts I see from Christians. Heaping shame if that's going to work. didn't work for hundreds of years with the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law to make it whole and complete. He loves you no matter what. He's not going to leave you there, but he loves you right where you are. Come and see. That's our message. Come and see that even though I'm unqualified, Jesus qualifies me. Father, We thank you and we praise you for your word today. Thank you that it's useful to teach us, to correct us, but also to uplift us, to guide us, to inspire us, to give us hope. You want to give us hope. If the church loses hope, what is there? 
We are meant to be the hope of the world, a light on a hill, a light that can't be hidden. God, help us go out into the world, not hide our light anymore, but to show everybody just how amazing and good you are. Help that be our message, that we would truly be vibrant, passionate, and selfless, going into the world to change it with a message of the gospel. There's nothing more powerful on planet Earth than the message of the gospel. Heads bowed and eyes still closed today. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to that message. Maybe today is the first time you're really realizing I, I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to be more than what I am. I don't have to try harder, no more. I don't have to be ready to come to Jesus. That he really loves me for who I am. I want that. I want his forgiveness. I want his love. I want the relationship with him. And I'm ready to give my heart over to him today. Maybe it's the first time for you ever. Or it's just been a really long time and you want to come back to him. And Jesus wants to give that to you today. In fact, he's already given it to you 2,000 years ago on the cross. All we have to do is accept it. We say, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you died on that cross 2,000 years ago for me. I accept your forgiveness in my life. Thank you. And I choose to live your way from today forward. If that's you, you want to pray that prayer, first time or first time in a long time, and you're in this room, would you just raise your hand right where you are? I want to give my life to Jesus. Thank you. Keep that up for just a moment. Usher's just going to slip a card in your hand. If you're watching online today and you're making that decision, text Simon to the number on the screen or type in the comments, I'm in. I'm into following Jesus. We would love to help you with that decision, give you some resources. Anybody else? I don't want to rush this moment. Anybody else? I want to give my life to Jesus. Just raise your hand up high if that's you. Or maybe today, you know, you've been a Christian for a while, you've been a believer, but there's been some judgment, some pride that's crept up a little bit. Maybe you started to feel just a little bit like you earned your salvation, a little entitled. And today you're realizing that needs stripped away. You need to realize that you were lost and Jesus came to find you. You need to have that attitude with people. I just want to offer a moment of repentance just to say, God, I'm sorry. I've been angry. I've been annoyed with the world. I'm heaping shame and guilt onto everybody with my attitude. I don't want to do that anymore. I want to offer hope, grace, peace. That's you. Would you just raise your hand? Father, we thank you and we praise you for every hand raised today. We thank you for every move towards you. Understanding that this relationship with you is a journey, that you're going to reveal things to us as we're ready to hear them, that you are a good and faithful shepherd guides us, comes to find us, that you truly came to seek and to save the lost. Father, we acknowledge that we are lost, that we need hope. And we receive it from you today, and we go out of these doors today carrying that hope, that light, 
a salvation to the world, that we are the church, that we're going to hold our head high, we're going to square our shoulders, and we're just going to love people. We're going to be open to hearing from you if you have specific people in mind for us to love, to give grace to this week. Show us, God. Send us on missions for you that we truly wouldn't come to you with like a laundry list of God, do this, this, and this for me. That We come to you every day saying, God, what do you have for me today? I know I'm not qualified. I can't do this on my own. I need you if I'm going to accomplish this, but show me someone that needs you. Someone I can speak hope to. Someone I can be Jesus to in this world. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name. Listen, if you made that decision to follow Jesus today, I would, I'm going to be right down here at the end of the stage. I would love to talk to you, to give you a Bible if you don't have one, to lead you through what this means for you. And if you have a takeaway today, this is, is a practice that we have here at Freedom Valley. If you're taking something away from today, you wrote it down in your notes, you, you want to remember it all week. These guys with the blue lights in the back are setting up right now. They would love to just capture that 20 seconds on camera for a project that we're working on and to share the message with others who can be a part of that today. Would you all stand with me? We're going to leave today inspired, right? Victorious, joyful, hopeful, ready to go into the world and be the vibrant, passionate, selfless church God has called you to be. Amen? We do that together? One more prayer of blessing. Father, we thank you and we praise you for every single person here, every single person listening today. God, we just speak that hope. I ask you for that hope to be overwhelming, overflowing out of us, that we would go into this world ready to change with the message of the gospel. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you all. See you next week.
Thank you so much for joining us today. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, please let us know by going to fv.church slash I am in. And remember to download our app for more content and helpful links.